let's talk about it, talk about it. Don't let it sit on your mind. When you talk about it, talk about it. Know that it will be alright. Let's talk about it, talk about it. Hello, hello, hello. It's your girl, Teresa Sophia, and you are now tuned in to episode seven of the Mindful Podcast. Dang, we're already at episode seven, almost done with the first season of the Mindful Podcast. Today, I have some special guests here with me. We're going to be discussing police brutality and mass incarceration, and I'm just going to have my guests introduce themselves. Let's start with the lady, the lovely lady in the room, Sarah. Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm so happy to be here. I'm a social worker, a poet, and a writer. Nice. Ooh, very nice. Uh, I'm Alex, for the returning listeners. Um, I've been here since episode one. I'm a realtor right now, also in my master's program, to become a therapist in the end. I have pretty good experience in psych hospitals and working with different demographics in mental health. So that's my expertise here. And on the phone, we have Chooks. Chooks, introduce yourself to the people. Uh, like Teresa said, my name is Chooks. I'm Chief's best friend. Uh, <laughs> I work as a sales engineer. Uh, I'm currently finishing up my undergraduate degree in uh, mechanical engineering. That's about it for me. Nice. So I want to let the listeners know that for the first time, we do have someone who identifies as white in the room. With this podcast and with what's on your mind in general, a part of the mission is that we focus on highlighting and amplifying voices of color. But I do believe when there are people outside of that demographic and that group who get it, it's important to invite them into the conversation because when they get it and they interface with communities of color, I think there's dialogue that should be had. And I think Sarah can be almost a light for other white identifying people who want to partake in aiding people of color because she does it the right way. And I do want to say the reason why I am highlighting her, and it's not to say that like I'm going to put her on a pedestal because a white person is doing the right thing. I think she's an example for a lot of white people. So when we were throwing Mind Fest, which is uh, the mental health festival that What's On Your Mind throws, look out for it to come back in May 2019. But she hit me up on Facebook and was just like, Teresa, if you need me to be there to break down, set up, make space for people of color to actually enjoy the festival, please let me know how I can be utilized. And I, I just thought that was like a perfect example of a white ally and I, I don't even want to use the word ally because like I said she gets it and I, I think white people can be a part of the movement if they're doing it correctly but I think that was just a perfect example and that's why I invited her today in addition to her experience working in the prison system so I just wanted to say that and get that out the way in case you see pictures of us on the gram like why is this white girl why, why was Sarah there but just so people know now that you guys have introduced yourselves how is everyone in the room feeling let's go with Chooks first actually I'm actually feeling pretty optimistic for a, it's a rainy Friday but I have just had the most productive day with work and with school I was just telling you how I just met with my advisor um things are looking up I am feeling good um, and I'm drinking tonight, so that's always a plus. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Everything in moderation, though, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. right. So, Alex, how are you doing? Uh, I am doing fantastic. You know, I, I think when you get a chance to look at the blessings in your life, despite all the things that can and have gone wrong, I've gotten an opportunity to just use gratitude as my fuel mm. and man i don't think i can ever go back to where i was before so mm. you know i was thinking about that today just walking in the store today and you know i was talking to this older person who was talking about oh yeah well i'm in school now and they were down about it and i was like listen your journey is your journey mm. next year's you is going to be so much happier mm. than this year's you like you know i was like telling her i was like listen i dropped out went back I had a dead-end job, graduated, got into my master's, got into real estate. I've gotten so far 
and I'm not done yet. Like your story in five years from now is going to be awesome. So mm. take my number. We're going to keep in contact. Yeah. Like just some random stranger. And I was just like, we're going to keep in contact because I want to see what else you do, you know? Mm. And so anyway, sorry, diatribe. Gratitude. <laughs> you guys, that's your fuel. <laughs> look to your left. Look to your right. You have something that no one else has. Mm. That'll keep you going. You just took us Love to it. church, Pastor <laughs> Alex. <laughs> Pastor Jean Baptiste. Thank you. I'm getting really good. I'm feeling buoyant. I feel happy. Kind of like you were just saying. A year ago, at this time, I was miserable. Just mm. in an awful, depressed, terrible space. And I was thinking about it today, like how grateful I am for I feel in a solid place with my mental health right now. Mm -hmm. And that is just super cool mm -hmm. <laughs> coming from, like you were saying, a year ago and looking at a year out and just mm -hmm. feeling kind of stable is just really exciting. Mm. How I wonder, are you feeling, darling? Oh, thank you. You know what? I've been waiting all season for someone to ask me that. Really? I'm like extra ants. No one's ever oh asked me. Oh my god! That. I've been waiting. Feeling? I'm like, I can't wait till like someone actually asks me. My apologies. <laughs> thank my you, goodness. Sarah. Stuff it up, Alex. You know Come what? I thought on. it was like a foregone conclusion to, for her to, you know, we go through it and then she automatically goes. Out sometimes I do. Sometimes I, I do. Like, you know, so that's fair. That's fair. You know what? Thank you. Thank you. I feel good. <laughs> like, is this how people feel when I ask them how they're feeling on the streets? I feel really good right now. Chooks, what's up with you? Why didn't you ask your best friend how she was feeling? Huh? <laughs> she's always great when she's talking to me. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Any, anyway, right. so I, I was thinking, too, I, I wonder what was going on with the planets. And I'm not into the retrograde stuff, but like. What was going on last year? Because last mm. year I was in a very low place, probably one of the mm. lowest places in my adult life. I was working a job where I wasn't happy. I was very isolated physically, mentally from my loved ones. Mm. I was getting out of a relationship that was very unhealthy. Like I had so much going on this time last year. And now I did a complete 180. Like I do have my times. Right now I'm going through like my menstrual cycle. So like it's been like a very <laughs> emotional week for me. And then I like got back into dating and that's triggering a lot of past emotions. But that's like a whole different episode. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, Season two, look yep. up. Yeah. But oh, like overall, I'm really good. And just like Chooks, like today was a really productive day. And it was one of those days mm -hmm. where like your productivity makes you feel closer to your dream. So I was like getting Absolutely. things done. Mm -hmm. I had conference calls all day and I was like, yeah, I'm killing the job. <laughs> I'm killing the five to nine. And I, it just felt really good. So <laughs> thank you. I got like this extra boost of energy because Yay. of that. So thank you so much, Sarah. That's awesome. I got it. Way to show us up. <laughs> and I think it, I think it's good that we feel this way, especially going into a topic like mm. this that is very mm. taxing and very emotionally draining. So I wanted to start off by just telling my story and talk about like my interactions with the police and my most recent interaction which I was telling you guys before we started recording that this is something that I don't really talk about. I have a tendency when like I go through a traumatic experience, like my brain completely like removes it. Mm -hmm. And like, I almost forget that I have gone through it until like something happens or someone like brings it up explicitly. And then I'm like, Oh yeah, <laughs> there was that time. And I, I think that's definitely a way that my brain tries to cope. cope. So I, I'm going to talk about my story and I won't get too deep into it because I do not want to incriminate myself. But essentially in April, 2018, I was arrested on the campus of Brockton High School. That is my alma mater. I, I graduated Brockton High School in 2009. I was on the campus retrieving a set of keys from my father, who was a teacher at Brockton High, and he's been teaching there for about 30 years. So I entered the building. I checked in, did not sign in because I was not asked to sign in. I saw my former track coach. I chopped it up with a family friend who is now working there. I left. I came back and got the keys, was leaving. And then as I was leaving, I was stopped by two police cars. One kind of cut me off in the front and then the other to the side of me. I was asked to step out repeatedly, very aggressively. I had asked why I was being asked to step out. I didn't get a response. And then essentially I was aggressively taken out of my car, 
put in the back of a police car. And the entire experience, I felt like nobody was listening to me from Mm -hmm. the clerk to the booking officer to just random officers passing by. Everyone that I, the school police that was there, everyone I interacted with, I felt like they just instantly labeled me a criminal. There was actually one point where the sergeant from the school did ask me, like, oh, so why were you here? What were you doing? But as soon as I started explaining and I I said that I was a former student at Brockton High, he like completely shut me out, started yelling at me and started referring to a recent school shooting that just happened. And he was like, well, the Parkland shooter. Yeah. And this is yelling at me. The Parkland shooter was a former student, too. And then just walked away afterwards. So. I had never felt so powerless in my life. And this is someone coming from someone who usually my voice and the way I speak gets me out of a lot of situations. Not that I'm saying this is getting me out of a situation, but it's usually enough for people to see me in a different light. It was an interesting experience in a sense, too, because just thinking of the intersectionalities of being black, you sometimes think when you're educated and black or you dress a certain way and you're black that you won't get a certain type of treatment from people and being a woman too. I I thought like maybe like people would be a little softer. Yeah. It's through experience. It's Mm -hmm. not necessarily because you just, you believe that it's Mm -hmm. through experience. Mm -hmm. Okay. They're treating me this way because of the way I speak. Totally agree. Because like, even with living in the Bronx, like there were police cars on my street all the time. And I I remember like one time specifically, I I tapped on a police car because I I think I was like complaining about like all the dog poop that was on the street or something. (laughs) I wanted to complain about that. And then like I tap on the car and like the officer gets out the car and starts yelling, hey there. The way I speak is quote unquote like a valley girl. So once I started speaking, he treated me completely different. And like that is like, I feel like a constant experience. So to be in this situation where I'm in my city where I grew up, mm. I'm at a school that I graduated at. My dad works there. Mm-hmm. I know staff that's there. Like I accomplished a lot when I was at that school. And then for me to be in this situation, I was just like, what in the yeah. world? And then it made me think about, okay, what about everybody else that doesn't even have all this? You know, and uh, what about the people who constantly have to go through the system, who are constantly locked up? It was just like, dang, like, this is a reality. For me, I feel like, you know, at least I have a platform to talk about this type of stuff. But, you know, it was very difficult. But I wanted to hear from Chooks, because I know you have been arrested. And and I want you to maybe talk about some of your arrests and um, especially being a six foot tall (laughs) black Nigerian man. How has your experience been with the police over the years? Yeah. As a tall, large African-American man with a beard now, most of my interactions with the police have been where I am almost immediately deemed a threat. There's been times where I've been driving. I got pulled over once and I was approached by the officer with his gun drawn. And that was just wild to me. He approached my car with his gun drawn and his excuse was that I took too long to pull over. And it made no sense to me at all. Maybe someone who knows these situations better than I can make sense of it. But from my perspective, taking too long to pull over when he didn't, we were on a bridge when he turned his lights on, I'm not gonna pull over on a bridge. That's, I'm thinking of your safety and my safety, maybe 20 feet further I pulled ahead you know what I mean Mm -hmm. so to just have that and the craziest part about that is it wasn't the first time I had a police officer pull his gun on me my reaction to it wasn't what it should have been you've had a gun pulled multiple times out on you multiple times I've had police pull a weapon on me when I am not someone who is out to hurt the police I'm not out there selling drugs I'm Mm -hmm. not gang banging for the most part I am not a threat to anybody so to be considered a threat just because of you know how I look the color of my skin, my height, it sucks. But I will say there are situations where I have been less than cooperative, Uh, maybe had too much to drink, and I wasn't the greatest person to be interacting with. And there have been officers who were able to handle the situation appropriately, without Mm -hmm. excessive force, without taking things too far. But Mm -hmm. that's few and far between. That's insane, but it's definitely a harsh reality. And... Especially with the visibility of all these police shootings happening right now. We're seeing it being highlighted a lot more. It's always been 
an experience that we've had. Um, and even when I was getting arrested, all I could repeat in my head was just like Sandra Bland, Sandra Bland, Sandra Bland. And one of my charges was mm-hmm. resisting arrest. And I did not resist at all. It was a six foot two large built white man that arrested me. So there was no way that I, I was going to really oppose him or be a threat to him. For the other people in the room, you guys have not been arrested, but you've experienced incarceration and the police in certain ways. Sarah, I want you to talk a little bit about your experience working in the prison system Mm -hmm. and then even like what you see or like what your view of what's being portrayed in the media and like what the lived reality and experiences Mm -hmm. of me and Chooks was as Mm -hmm. well. Yeah, absolutely. And so I spent about two years working as a substance abuse counselor in medium security prisons in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. I was at MCI Concord and then MCI Norfolk for some time. Um, and so that has been my firsthand experience with corrections and with incarceration and kind of the long term effects and what it looks like for someone who's in the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just a point to kind of what the both um, what Chooks and you were both saying about resisting versus not resisting arrest Mm -hmm. um i always find that point when people make it to be kind of curious and and almost kind of offensive to me when people use resisting arrest as an excuse or as a justification because and again this isn't my experience at all but my understanding from Mm -hmm. the people around me that have shared their experience is that to be in a situation with police officers with law enforcement is a traumatizing situation Mm -hmm. and is a life and death situation. Mm -hmm. And so to ask someone to respond um, in a tranquil, calm, Mm -hmm. cool, collected way in the face of something that's life-threatening, because Mm -hmm. as everyone knows who has a pulse, you know, right now, Mm -hmm. just existing while being a person of color in this world, police will kill you for that. Mm -hmm. And so it's always so interesting to me when people pull that whole resistance and how did they act because you were literally in the face of a traumatic experience and none of us very few of us have the ability to face immediate trauma and immediate threat with tranquility with Mm -hmm. being respectful with being calm yeah I just always find that to be kind of hard to stomach but I guess in terms of corrections and what that looked like kind of working with men that were experiencing Walking through the system every day, it's interesting because, again, just the experiencing the criminal justice system in any form is traumatic, right? Mm-hmm. So being arrested, what, what you went through, I can't put words to your experience, but to have to deal with police and be arrested is traumatic. Your power and your control is taken away from mm-hmm. you. To go through the court system, arraignment, mm-hmm. trial mm-hmm. is traumatic mm-hmm. and, and is oppressive. Um, and then to be within the system, to go through corrections is also in and of itself just a a deeply traumatic experience in that all your autonomy is taken away from you, Mm -hmm. all your choice, um, all your individuality. And so it's just when you are put in the system, not only does our system like disproportionately target populations that already have systemic historic trauma, Mm -hmm. but then it puts them in a system which exacerbates it. Mm -hmm. And so the way that prison is set up every single moment that these men like would walk through the day and I would watch them, they were constantly facing triggers of their traumas. Every single moment of their day is dictated by person in authority, Mm -hmm. often in a abusive, demanding, dehumanizing manner. Mm -hmm. And so it's just like constantly watching them step through the day was just watching them be triggered over And over and over and over again. And so it was just really painful to watch. I was there as as a treatment provider, but it was just really difficult to try to even create a space Mm -hmm. for treatment. I think you raised a lot of good points. And um, when I did go to court the following Monday and and I was explaining the situation, the police officer that I was speaking to was like, next time, just make sure like you stay quiet. And I'm like, if I am being arrested on a place that is very familiar to me where I spent four years of my life that I frequent often and I feel safe and I feel at home and and, okay, like say you did detain me, but there are no grounds for taking me all the way to the police station and staying four hours in a jail cell. Why would I be quiet? Mm -hmm. Like I'm defending myself because... What you're doing is unjust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that it's insane the standard that is held to people in these interactions where you're telling them 
stop resisting and that's the only thing that's gonna happen i remember when a close friend of mine she said you know well you know i'm not too sure about it i, I think it's a little bit exaggerating i mean when a cop pulls me over i'm not you know all that scared i mean you know just hand over your license and do whatever oh you minimize every single interaction all in one sentence and manage to just throw it in a bucket like oh, you're kidding me mm-hmm. so <clears throat> in terms of you know just resisting resisting arrest or not cooperating with something you feel is unjust is not a killable offense mm-hmm. is not an offense where you should be beaten down and it's mm-hmm. not an offense where you should be arrested either mm-hmm. because you know there's a lot of things that can go on within an interaction between someone of authority and someone not of authority mm-hmm. hence why we have a voting system where we take out people who we don't believe is you know doing the best job as an authority figure mm-hmm. so my question to people is always like if you can sit here and criticize the government or not trust the government, the FBI, the CIA, and listening in all your conversations, mm-hmm. if you can't trust Facebook and this and that, mm-hmm. and yet you can't see how a civilian who is interpreting their interaction with somebody else is unfair can actually have a problem with that, mm-hmm. then where's the disconnection for you? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Is the disconnection mm-hmm. just because you don't have a problem with it? And so it definitely does bug the living hell out of me. However, I was just having the conversation before we even started. We were just talking about how interactions with people who don't believe what we're trying to show them is existing. I don't let it get me mad anymore Mm -hmm. because what I've realized is just their exposure to it is not there. And so our job, I feel like, is to just continue living by example and Mm -hmm. showing how these things exist. You don't have to go out of your way to teach them. Just teach them through example and say, hey, these things are existing. These are the facts. And that's what's going on. So with my experiences, I've I've been lucky to not have been arrested or have uh, an argument back and forth with cops um, or anyone of authority figure. Those situations have still been scary for me. You know what I mean? Just the mm-hmm. mirror being pulled over and the lights are in your side mirror and they're right in your face. And you're just like, I don't know who's approaching me. I don't know if this person's having a good day, person's having a bad day. I don't know if there's a person of color that they're looking for that looks just like me. I don't know what they're going to see when I even reach. I don't even want my black wallet to come out. You know, so I, I did something where I like I took out this small mini wallet out of my wallet in order so that I'm not grabbing something large and black. And they mistake it as something else. For somebody listening to this right now, completely irrational. For me, it feels very normal. It feels Mm -hmm. very everyday. That's my experience on on that. And this goes layers. And I'm looking at the questions. I know we're going to touch upon some of those, so I won't go too far. Prior to this, we had a conversation about the Philando Castile video Mm -hmm. specifically Mm -hmm. and uh, how that really impacted you watching that. I myself choose as a self-care practice not to watch any of these. I don't know what any of these videos from not probably not since the Mike Brown shooting Mm -hmm. that I've watched any type of footage. What did that do for you? How did you feel about that? And um, how have just these videos and all these publicized police brutality and killings and shootings how does that impact you so i'm about to go a little bit honestly i remember that week of philando castile's murder there was three people killed that day or that week i'm sorry three like great stories that were thrown out and it seemed like every other day that week somebody was killed and philando was the last one mm-hmm. and seeing the video and this is after like seeing other videos however just you know, you just try not to get into it too much. You see that video and that video like knocks off the checks of everything that's ever been said. Abide by what the officer said. He mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. You know, the officer told him to take his hands out the gun, uh, out the bag. I'm sorry. And he did. He had a license to carry. He was in his right. And you're telling me that despite all of that, he was riddled with bullets despite mm-hmm. all of that. Mm-hmm. And so I watched that and I was just like, man, that could have been me. Why? Because I could have just gone and been like, gotten my LTC. I want to get my LTC. Mm -hmm. I could have told the officer, just like Philando did, I have a license to carry and I have a gun in this bag, just like Philando did. And I would have immediately, if he told me, hey, don't reach for that, and I would have jumped and threw my hands up, that would have been just that triggering point for someone to kill me. So I definitely get like kind of emotional when I talk about Philando Castillo because what happened, what I realized was that I went... Uh, like a year a full year after that without really revisiting that i didn't really talk to anybody about it however i was just really upset about it 
And then it went away and I was like, whatever. And then I, I sat and I spoke to this woman who was like in a supervisor role. And we were talking about something else, <clears throat> completely different, just about the workday. And, you know, I sat down in our office. She's a, a Caucasian woman. And, you know, she was like, man, it's really crazy what's going on these days because there was another, you know, shooting. And um, I was like, yeah, you know, one of the things I, I think I'm realizing is just it's hard to be black in America. Mm. And then she was like, you could just see it on her face. She didn't know really what to say. She was like, you know, I just wish I could know what to do. And then I just started thinking about it. I was like, I repeated it. It's really just hard to be black in America. I think that's all it is. And then as soon as I was like, the whole Philando Castile thing, I didn't realize that's been deep down inside of me. And I just started tearing up. Mm -hmm. I just started crying. So she got up, she went and she closed the door. Mm. And like nobody else came into the office and I was like crying and I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I don't know why I'm crying right now. You know, like this big dude is in your office just crying over something that happened last year. And then I just like took a deep breath and I was like, if I feel that, I can't even imagine mm -hmm. what else is being felt in all of our communities. Mm -hmm. And uh, that like changed my life to be able to sit there and just start crying about it. That isn't, you know, my son, that isn't a family member. However, that is me. I ended up doing a full research paper when I was in one of my research classes in grad school, and it was about those videos and those experiences and post-traumatic stress. Some people were not happy with me labeling it, you know, post-traumatic PTSD. Mm -hmm. However, I was just like, you know what? That's fine. I'll, that's I'll just associate, <laughs> you know, yeah, even if you don't want it, I'll associate it with symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. So what I said was, you know, does witnessing violence through those videos cause or trigger symptoms of PTSD? Yes. You know what sucked? Doing the research? I was literally doing the research. If you go on, mm -hmm. you know, any kind of database, there's no research done on this. Like wow. there's no research done on witness police violence and PTSD. There's no research done on witness police violence in terms of like those videos and recent stuff, like because it's mm -hmm. a new thing. Mm -hmm. So I was like scratching my head and I was like, how do I write this paper? Right. So studies show that witness violence in general, mm -hmm. whether it's through the police in the community, whether it's domestic violence in your own home, gang violence, that causes PTSD, that causes symptoms of PTSD, that causes mm -hmm. major mental health issues. Mm -hmm. There's studies, all of it. None of it is truly pointing to what I was trying to research. Mm -hmm. However, in the end, I made that connection because you cannot tell me that witnessing someone who looks like you get over and over and over, over again, riddled with yeah. bullets, and even if you didn't even witness it, hearing about it, mm -hmm. knowing that another person was gunned down, knowing what a life is worth these days, if I lost my life, that's a that's a big deal. So we're talking about it right now, and it's even hard to believe we're actually talking about somebody who's no longer of this earth mm -hmm. because of a interaction between a, a cop and and them. And Chooks, for you to go through those things, like right, that's, that's what I was gonna say. So Chooks, how yeah. have you actually dealt with? Because I know you've had multiple um, situations, multiple encounters. What has been your, I guess, response to that trauma and how have you helped to cope with that trauma and really come to a place where, not of understanding, but to get better and to overcome it? What's funny is I'm very much someone who just carries things on their shoulders and doesn't really take the time to acknowledge what's bothering him and just sort of goes about my day and tries to keep carrying on. But you spoke about it earlier, mentioning how a, a year had passed and then all of a sudden you're in an office with a woman who's completely unrelated to any sort of situation and you, you're crying, you're bawling your eyes out. I've had a, a moment similar to that. You know, I have these situations that I find myself in where police are, they're over-policing, they're violent, they are extremely aggressive. And to me, I'm just confused, disoriented. I I, all I want to know is what's going on, what's happening, what did I do wrong, why are you speaking to me like this? And you, you just want to forget about it. You just want to let it go. You want to move on. Oh, he was just doing his job. Oh, you know, this is just my burden to carry. That's, this is how America is, so on and so forth. But then I what made me really realize how systematic this is and how deeply rooted it is a friend of mine a friend of a friend she is a black woman she is a physician assistant okay she put herself through school she worked overnight in a, uh, a cvs or something like that putting herself through school and just works for hospitals and 
she had a, a similar interaction with a police officer where she's kicked out of a hotel room that she paid for, mm. a super nice hotel room. These cops come in, they're aggressive, they're belligerent, they're violent in their tone. And it's like this woman did nothing to deserve that. The only thing that happened, essentially the common connector, is that she's a black woman. Mm -hmm. And seeing that happen to someone else who looked like me but doesn't have the same physical presence mm -hmm. as I do just made it all come out. Just all the emotions started pouring out. Mm -hmm. And I realized that this stuff is real. Like, it's, it's not only not is it just my experience, but it's an experience that we have no control over. Have you ever gone like, to therapy to talk about the situations that you've been in? I haven't. I haven't. And that's a mistake. Why not? Like I said, it just sort of felt like it was my cross to bury, if you will. This is what comes with the territory. You have to deal with it, which is another thing I appreciate so much about you, Teresa, just bringing attention to mental health and being and really understanding that you, that's something you really need to take care of, and especially in this day and age. So, Sarah, you were a counselor in a prison. What were the types of stories that you heard what kinds of trauma were people coming in with like what what was your experience actually listening to a, a lot of the men that you encountered yeah and so one of the aspects of my job was individual counseling sessions and it's interesting because I'm not licensed I have my undergraduate degree in sociology and English but I'm not licensed I'm not a clinician mm -hmm. um, I'm not a therapist right but there's no spaces for them to have that. And mm -hmm. so when I would have these one-on-one -on -one sessions where we were supposed to talk about the program that they were in or their day-to-day, -day, I found maybe because I was so distant from them, maybe because I was a stranger, it was almost easier. Mm -hmm. And so in these one-on-one -on -one sessions, the men would open up about just severe, deeply embedded traumas, things from their childhood, things from their relationships, things would spill out and I would do my best to be present and to listen to them because I think that's one of the most important things you can do for someone that's sharing. Just listen and affirm and validate their feelings. But mm -hmm. I always felt awful because I couldn't give them what they needed. I wished I had more training. I wished I was licensed. I wish I was a professional that really could give them the guidance that they and treatment that they needed. But in these spaces, it would literally just spill out. I would, you would never believe this, right? Cause it's a medium security men's prison, but I cannot tell you how many people in their first time meeting me, their first session it would be a one on one session for about an hour in a classroom in a mm -hmm. building would cry in the first session. Mm -hmm. Just somewhere in the first session, these men would just start to shed tears and it would happen so often. And one time I kind of asked this man what was going on for him. And he just was like, just no one has asked how I am in so long. Mm -hmm. No one has listened to me. Like mm -hmm. no one has checked up on me ever that I remember in so mm -hmm. long. And so they would just kind of spill over. And I felt so privileged and honored to hold that space with them. But also just so many days I would go home feeling awful because I could, like I wasn't enough and I, they needed more resources and mm -hmm. than I could offer. The, the trauma that presented itself in those spaces was really powerful. Like one moment that really stands out in my mind is the first session I had with the client and he had just come from the max. The maximum security to the medium was a bit of a culture shock for people. Mm -hmm. um, the max is really tumultuous and violent. And so where I was working was a little bit more free flowing. And so that could be overwhelming for people. So in the first session, this guy sat down and he started talking to me and his hand was in front of his mouth. And I kind of just let him do it, figure mm -hmm. it out. I don't know. Maybe it's just some weird thing that he likes to do. Um, mm -hmm. And he said he had never spoken to someone before, so it was new and uncomfortable. So I'm like, mm -hmm. all right, I'll just let him do his thing. But after a while, I couldn't really hear what he was saying because his hand was literally in front of his mouth and blocking his words. And finally, I was like, hey, like, would you mind maybe just moving your hand so I can hear you a little better? And he just was like, oh, no, no, no I can't do that. And I was like, oh, okay, what, like, is there a reason? And he just was like, because then people can see what I'm saying. And I was like, it's, it's just me and you. We're in the room. Like, there's no cameras here. No one's here. And he's like, you don't understand. If someone sees me, they're going to read my lips. Like, I could get jumped. I Like, it's too dangerous. You got to cover your mouth. Otherwise, people are going to see what you're saying. He's like, it's not safe. And in the moment, in my mind, you know, the visceral thing is that's irrational. Where it's just me and you. There's mm -hmm. no one watching. Mm -hmm. But that was rooted in his experience. Mm -hmm. That was it's rooted in like a him. survival tactic mm -hmm. of people can read my lips and then use those words to hurt me or to attack me. And so 
it didn't make sense in the moment, but mm-hmm. it was PTSD. It was mm-hmm. him, like the experiences he had had carrying in through the moments. And so stuff like that, I would see all the time and just, I, yeah. Yeah. So you guys raise points that I often see, um, especially when I'm doing my outreach. I have noticed that I do see an influx of men of color that approach me specifically. And I think that speaks to a lack of outlets, a lack of resources and a lack of platforms for men of color to really share their experiences. And even on the street, it's very similar to the experience that you're talking about. Like these men will come and then it's almost like word vomit. And like, this is just a random person on the street. They'll start talking to me about their kids and they'll start talking to me about maybe their drug addiction or whatever they're experiencing, seeing people getting shot in front of them. And I've had men cry with me in front of me. And it's so interesting too, that even at all levels, even Chooks as someone who has, I think, more of like a, a sheltered upbringing. He has his parents in his life. For you to see that across the entire spectrum of the Black experience is, I think, is very interested. And I think it's um, deeply rooted in our systems. Absolutely. I, I think the Black condition, I always say this, the Black condition is fascinating. It is layered with just so much resiliency, you know, mm-hmm. just things to overcome thing and it's crazy because it's like black people we are strong Mm -hmm. and it's to a fault you speak with somebody who's been through a lot to even survive unfortunately they're in jail they're in prison max and they're down to a medium security one they've gone through a lot to get where they needed to be and yet they need that conversation it's saddening you know what i mean like right now i'm in kind of like a a little bit of a mood right now, like after talking mm-hmm. about it, because I'm like, man, I forgot how sad this is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm a little more mellowed out right now. <laughs> how do you guys feel about, especially recently with all the shootings and acts of terrorism that have been done by white people recently, and not just recently, this is over the, the world. world. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Yep. And then being apprehended with gun in hand, but taken home or taken back to the police department, not being killed, saying that they are mentally ill and kind of using that as a crutch. Whereas we're talking about experiences of not just black men, but people of color in neighborhoods, seeing very real things, experiencing PTSD and never being able to say, well, I have a mental illness. That's why I did this and that. And I think you guys raise very real points, especially Alex, with the research that you've done. If you experience traumatizing experience one after another, one after another, then you're obviously going to have issues. And especially if they're unresolved and then you add on this layer of us not being able to resolve them via therapy, it's unfair. Yeah. What's your outlet? Exactly. You know, when you talk about PTSD and some of the symptoms, you know, there's increased vigilance and suspicion, which is what you went through with the person you were speaking. Um, Increased sensitivity to threat. Same thing. Even for Chooks, I'm sure now he has an increased vigilance when it comes to being around cops or when it comes Mm -hmm. to being around figures. You know what I mean? I love that you opened up speaking about, you know, certain scenarios where you weren't exactly in the best place, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it came from alcohol or you know, any kind of usage of anything. And it talks about, you know, increased drug usage and alcohol usage is symptoms of it. And and it's like if anybody would just go down the list of symptoms mm-hmm. for PTSD or anything like that and just match it with some of these black experiences of men who deal with police or crime in general. Like mm-hmm. we're not going to sit here and say that, you know, there isn't multiple layers to it of where they live and, and the things they go through. Mm-hmm. However, just go through the symptoms and tell me there isn't a mental health thing for our community. Mm-hmm. It sucks that it is a crutch used for certain people who do acts of terrorism. Don't get me wrong. It is a problem. There is a mental health issue with them. Mm-hmm. There is a mental health issue with our community as well. And mm-hmm. it shows in ways that people want to say, oh, well, look at the shootings in Chicago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's wrong? Are they are we going out killing people because we like to kill people? Or is there some post-traumatic stress? Or is there some mental health issues that are unaddressed? 
I just went through a training, a racial justice training. Shout out to Southern Jamaica Plain Health Center. They do a lot of great work around racial justice. And it was about racial justice framing and how we can take different movements, different words, different scenarios, and completely reframe it depending on who we're seeing in the photo. So they gave a, a really good example that I never even thought about. They, they gave the example of Boston Strong versus Black Lives Matter and like the connotations that come along with Boston Strong. You think like we're rallying together, we're being unified, yeah. we're it's, it's a very positive message and it's being embroidered in like everybody's clothing and people are selling t-shirts that say it. But then Black Lives Matter is radical <laughs> and it's negative Whoa. and it has it this excludes, violent connotation. Right. It excludes, you know, other lives. It's immediately. Yeah, exactly. Immediately met with all lives matter. Exactly. <sighs> but no one's no one hears Boston strong and it's like Cincinnati strong. <laughs> Actually. And it's funny because there was a, a sports event. I don't know if it was hockey or something else where the other team had their city. And strong in it as a sign. And there were articles coming out that condemned them because of the meaning of Boston Strong was mm. something that meant something. They shouldn't be, you know, I understand they wanted to be opposition, which it was pretty light. It wasn't like they were talking about, you know, the marathon bomb or anything like that. They were literally just saying like, oh, well, we're strong too. But, uh, and they condemned them. Mm-hmm. And it was like, so why don't you condemn all lives matter as right. well? Right. Like, it's so funny how in, in a different context, it's all of a sudden this novel concept. Well, not even a novel concept. It's an easily comprehensible concept. But when it applies to black lives and and it just all of a sudden becomes this thing that's ugly and twisted mm-hmm. and perverse, it, it makes no sense. Mm-hmm. They gave a lot of great examples during that training. Being black is just hard. hard <laughs> I feel like that's American like every yeah. episode. Yeah. It is. It, it is very yeah. difficult. I think it speaks to how fragile and selfish and egotistical the white psyche is Mm. that for someone to say that they matter is something that white people, myself included, white people find an ability. I mean, I don't find offense to it, obviously, but Mm. white people find offense to someone asserting that they have worth and matter. And it's because it's something obvious to them. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? They look at Black Lives Matter and they say, what are you talking about? Obviously, all lives matter. And it's so obvious. and, And to people of color no it's it doesn't feel that obvious if every time something happens to us you pull out a picture of a person who committed a crime and you specifically pick the picture and it's like you see night and day they they show this one person of whatever race and they're a family man they were you know Mm -hmm. in school this and that and then you show the other picture of the guy and it's just not it's their mugshot it's usually their mugshot and you're framing that and so one of the things I want to definitely qualify again, and I feel like I always qualify it, mm-hmm. when we say they, when we say white people, when we say, you know, all that, we understand that there is too many people to please with one sweeping statement. We know we're not mm-hmm. including everybody. Yeah. You know, we know when we say they and like the news doing that, it's the media and not necessarily you who's listening to this mm-hmm. right now. We just want you to know as a system, there is a problem. And if you are not contributing to changing it, you are contributing to it, allowing itself to continue. Amen. So. That's a message right there. <laughs> Can I pose a question in, in just responding to that? Yeah. yeah. It's a conscious system, correct? Or is it just something that's kind of like gravity? Like it's just there. In terms of it being a conscious system, absolutely. It's also something that is just there because of lack of awareness to it or lack of perspective in it happening. There is certain systemic things that go on with us that we don't even realize it's like unintentional things that go on a person that isn't of color or a person in power who their intentions weren't necessarily to create a system of racism or perpetuate a system of racism until they're able to be learned about that however is there a consciousness to it where did it stem from there's a yeah, very long history definitely. of it and that's and that we can mm-hmm. never erase that yeah. we'll never be able to erase that what do you think no, yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. It's hard to just think that all of this is just consciously, actively directed against people of color. Like, you really you don't hate believe it. people of color this much. It's just hard to really wrap your head around. I don't know. It's, just, it's, it a, it's about power. I think white people want to remain the dominant culture. I think 
that white people think that if everybody's okay, that means they're not okay for whatever reason. And that if there's equity, that they're going to lose their place in this patriarchal society, in this capitalistic society. And I think a lot of it stems from fear as well. In these conversations about mental health, when we respond to different situations with fear, it's never good. That's a response that's based on something that's not reality. It's just what you feel in that moment. Your feelings are are fluid. They come and go. And I think a lot of white people operate on fear-based responses. And like just going back to this training that I went to, they gave a really good example of like what equity looks like. So the example was... Think of like when you go to a concert or like a Red Sox game. Um, so they gave an example of like a bathroom, right? So like when you go to the bathroom during intermission, you always see the woman's line extremely long, right? Because in their mind, they think that like equality, you're going to put like equal number of bathrooms yeah. in the men's bathroom and then you're going to put equal number of women's, but they don't take into account that women might take longer women might have their babies with them so you should be setting up bathrooms in a way that is equitable rather than equal so that people can use what they need to use in a manner that benefits them and then the point that they also brought up was that everything is interconnected so if a man is with his family He has to wait for, if his spouse is a woman, he has to wait for his wife to finish using the bathroom. And that causes a holdup until he can get to his seat after intermission. So I think we should start viewing the world in that way where we're all interconnected. So if a system is not built for women, then it's not built for men either. If a system is not built for (laughs) black people, it's not built for anybody else. Mm -hmm. And just like throwing my public health hat on, Mm -hmm. white people are doing poorly health-wise in America compared to other countries. And I think a lot of that is because of racism. I think a lot of that is because we have this society that pins poor or the working class white people against black people and it's a distraction from Mm -hmm. that one percent of white people that just puppeteering everybody if you cannot say black lives matter you cannot say all lives matter you can't right because no matter what you believe you cannot look at the condition of black people in america and say that there isn't something going on i don't care how far you want to go there has to be something that makes your head turn you know how like a dog turns his head to the side Mm -hmm. like there has to be something in the stories that are going on these days that make you go "Eh, maybe you know Mm -hmm. i don't care if you support trump i don't care if you support whoever there has to be some inkling in the back of your mind that's like maybe something is up and i just don't see it and it's not around me so i can't say it's happening everywhere However, it's something that's going on that is not okay for our black, you know, friends and family and things like that. Which should be easier to believe than everybody, all these people on the same page are crazy. Like, it's facts. Again, it doesn't make sense. So I kind of want to leave this on a positive note. What do you think could be done with police specifically? Because this is about police brutality, mass incarceration. It's so multidimensional. We just... condition so multi-level. What do, what do you think could be done to improve implicit bias amongst police and decrease the amount of people that they're just locking up and throwing into the so system to be even further traumatized? It's a lot, right? Difficult question. Yeah. 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 And it's like one of those that like the answers that come to mind readily are the ones that don't seem to work. Like mm-hmm. everyone wants to say, you know, give training to police officers Mm -hmm. give them bias training make that a part of the academy when they're becoming a police officer but it doesn't seem to exist and it doesn't seem to work and so i guess an initial thought would be that first responders especially law enforcement should have better education on trauma like Mm -hmm. this should be trauma-informed care because Mm -hmm. a large amount of the humans they're interacting with um, have experienced or are currently experiencing trauma Mm -hmm. and then in terms of how that leads into the prison system, that pipeline. 
I think diversion, like diversion, 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 because unfortunately, as much as I believe in and I'm dedicated to working with people already within the system to try to help them get away from the system, mm-hmm. it's such an uphill battle. It's mm-hmm. a disgustingly uphill battle. And so there's more and more prosecutors that are taking into account diversion and how to take someone in their first experiences and push them in another direction. Mm-hmm. There's someone right out of Boston, Adam Foss is like a prosecutor that I'm obsessed with because he does really incredible work in the area with how to take people on those initial experiences and push them away from the system because as we've been talking about, once you get one foot in, you just gain speed and it becomes more and more dangerous and scary to get out. And so nuanced, complicated question, but I guess my two thoughts are trauma-informed training and also diversion as as a method to get people out of the system. What do you guys think? So I definitely think that I am on board for bias-based training, however, not in the sense of what it's been. I think the inclusion of people within their communities is something that I've heard a little bit about, researched a little bit about. You know, there are places that are talking about having these officers in the communities without the weaponry Mm -hmm. to introduce themselves and make it almost like the recent talks about like nurses and and the ratios have these officers be more i guess in smaller areas getting to know their community without having to go out there guns blazing not all police officers obviously are bad you know and i don't even think that the ones who've made some of these mistakes of killing our black men and women are bad either i think that they are troubled and i think they have a long way to go Mm -hmm. i think that a lot of them are troubled and have a long way to go so in order to get us at a place where we see better practices from police, I think allowing them to see that they do have a bias and accepting that bias mm-hmm. because we um, all do. We all do. Mm-hmm. And be, if you go to Google uh, or if you go to any of the Harvard websites, there's a test that I took in college mm. that blew my mind. And it's the race weapons implicit association test. What it does is it has like five weapons, five harmless things like a you know a pen, you know a piece of paper, da da da. And then it has like five faces that are black, five faces that are white. And what they do is they flash you the picture of one of the faces and then one of the either harmless or harmful weapons, and then you pick whether or not you feel threatened or not. I did that, and I was like, oh okay, I get what they're doing. I get what they're doing. And immediately I said, oh, mm. because. I found that there was a lot of associations with blackface and a non-harmful weapon Mm -hmm. that felt more threatening. And I was like, oh, my God. We've internalized it. We've internalized this to be a problem. So I do highly, highly encourage everybody. Yes. Mm -hmm. Go to Google. Type in, you know, there's a Harvard test. You're allowed to take it on your computer. There's a book to it called Blindspot as well. And it's the Race Weapons Project Implicit Test. So basically... Whatever training that's needed to make police and people of authority and humans in general to see other humans is what we need. Understanding our bias against other humans and understanding that humans share the same experiences through mental health issues. We all share trauma. We all share different things across the spectrum, regardless of what race we are. And that'll allow those interactions to be like, okay, this is what a mental health problem looks like. Mm -hmm. I can approach this person knowing they have an issue and not necessarily they're you know, dangerous to me. Shooks, what do you think? Just off the top of my head, a couple of I don't know, simple rudimentary things um, that I've thought about. The first being there should be more black police officers. Mm. There should be more black police chiefs. There should be more, I'm sorry, let me say people of color in these positions where, you know, you're not having these squadrons of Caucasian men who don't interact with people of color on a daily basis. You know, Mm -hmm. they're not their colleagues. You know what I'm saying? They're just the people that they go and arrest. You know what I mean? Like it's, they're not having these sort of interactions where a face of color is normalized. They only see them in the light of a threat. I think we should be promoting an idea of kinship a lot more, especially at younger ages. I feel like we have a tendency to focus on all the differences between us rather than how similar we are. And I think as I've gotten older, there have been different parts of my life where I'm always living as a black woman, obviously, but I feel like there are different parts of my life where I almost build a wall and I'm siloed from other communities. And I only feel like 
communities that look like mine are going to relate to me. But in my experience, and we've talked about this, I think, on the podcast multiple times, is it's really people are people. And you can relate to an Asian person about this culture that you can't relate to. And I don't mean culture like ethnic wise but you know there's dreadlock culture there's anime culture and you can relate to different people regardless of their race on different things sarah and i played rugby together so like that's a culture that we're a part of that alex and i will never be able to have a conversation about so i i feel like we should be focusing more on this idea of kinship and togetherness and ways that we are similar rather than ways we are different. A lot of different things are put into place systemically to separate us, like even just the boxes we have to check all the time. I feel like we should also be able to learn to identify or be shown how to show the world how we identify and how we want the world to see us rather than the world telling us how they should see us so complicated it's like am i african-american am i black am i this am i that what box am i but i I don't think people should tell me what i am i want to tell you who i am they should be at the table that's Mm. actually something that was huge that i heard a great professor say Mm. was that during any kind of conversations you need to ask yourself who's not at the table who's not introducing themselves it's your job as a human to mm-hmm. include these people and to include them in talks where they define themselves and mm-hmm. it's not you defining it for them. Mm-hmm. And we all do it. We all define what the experience is for other people. We say, oh, you guys shouldn't do that. You guys shouldn't do this. Mm-hmm. And yet we complain about it for ourselves. The human condition is such a crazy cycle. And yet we have an opportunity here with conversations like this to make sure that we're inviting everyone at the table to define themselves and you know make this world better for what they say is all lives. Well, I want to thank you guys so much for joining me here this us. evening. Absolutely. Episode 7. So I I want to end this episode as I always do with a mindful moment mm-hmm. and I ask that you all participate in this mindful mm-hmm. moment with me. Chooks if you could have a seat somewhere. I'd really appreciate it. But today's mindful moment is called a body scan. In the past, we've talked about different relaxation techniques and how to just get in your mindful body. But this exercise is to allow you to just really take like a temperature check of each part of your body. So now we're going to scan the whole body and go through it like a spotlight section by section so you will know how to be mindful in your whole body so just get your feet flat on the floor just try to feel like as relaxed as possible you can slightly close your eyes if you want i want you to first feel yourself on your chair feel your feet on the floor your toes your heels are they heavy or light feel your seat on your chair your back leaning on the back of the chair Or if you're lying down, feel your body melt into where you are lying. Where your body is touching the chair or the floor, is it soft or hard? Let's soften those edges. Bring your hands together and rest them on your lap. Notice how your hands feel. Are they heavy or light? Warm or cool? Notice things about every part of the body. We put our flashlight of attention on, starting with your feet. What about your knees, your legs? Put your attention on your belly. Breathe in and fill it up with air, then breathe out the air. With your hands clasped in your lap, put your spotlight of attention on your fingertips, then your elbows, your shoulders, your back, your neck. Put your spotlight of attention on your face, your mouth, your eyes, your ears, the top of your head. Allow yourself to breathe silently for a few minutes. And when you're ready, open your eyes. Thanks. How did that feel? That was nice. You that liked it? Absolutely and relaxing. You have a lovely voice to listen to. Teresa. Thank you. I'm thinking yeah. about making like a mindful mixtape where you I do should. it. And just... That would be awesome. That would be so awesome. I feel like this like allows you to figure out where you hold your tension. 
And it just like, cause like even like my eyes, I'm like, oh wow, my eyes are like kind of tense right now. Like, why are my feet so hard on the ground? Like, yeah. it just allows you to uh, really be aware of that and yeah. conscious of that too. So we yeah. we just talked about something like very hard, very, <laughs> very difficult, difficult, and like we have a tendency to hold feelings in our body too. So it allows you to um, kind of release it and let it go. Thank you so much again for tuning in to episode seven. It is a wrap.